Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. I'm your host, Elle Stanger. We have today an expert in compulsive sexual behaviors. His name is Sylvan Nevis. He is a UK CP registered psychotherapist. He is a course director for the Contemporary Institute of Clinical Sexology, and he specializes in the study of sex, relationships, and trauma. His new book is called Compulsive Sexual Behaviors, a Psychosexual Treatment Guide for Clinicians. Go to silvaneves.co.uk and sexpositivityuk.com. Find him on Twitter at silvaneves3, number three, and Instagram at silvaneves-psychotherapy. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. You are in London. Yes, it's good afternoon for me. <laughs> yeah. Good morning from Portland, Oregon, U.S., so, Silva, how did you get into your current work? First of all, actually, can I say I've read 70% of your book. I am not a clinician. I am an educator who was fascinated to see a new book by a clinician about these things as someone who is a sex worker and deals with a lot of my clients' confusion and shame around their own arousal issues. So I was really interested. I was hoping that you wouldn't pathologize a lot of the things that we experience and you didn't. I'm really grateful for your book. So how did you get into your current work? Uh, yeah, thank you very much for the feedback. I really appreciate it actually, first of all. Um, yes, so I got into my work as I studied first as a psychotherapist, my, the, the core training for psychotherapy. And at the end of my training, I was very disappointed that there was hardly any lessons on human sexuality would you believe so then um, because i was interested in it i um i decided to do an extra training after that in in, in specialized in psychosexual and relationship psychotherapy and um and then you know finding my way through through it all these years so really this is how i got into it because i realized when i was doing psychotherapy the, the generic psychotherapy that uh, for a lot of people that were would come for anxiety or even depression which are, which are the, the two main things that people come for they you know often underlying all of this with relationship problems or sexual problems but those things were just never mm -hmm. discussed and never addressed and unfortunately mm -hmm. still now um, a lot of people that come to me they come to me and they say yes i've had great therapy with my other therapist but uh, i've never discussed my sexual issues and so now i'm coming to you for that and uh, so it's still kind yeah. of like most therapists are still not trained in, in human sexuality, which I think is a shame. Yeah, absolutely. So when I started training as just as an educator, and I say just because educators require less training than licensed or certified counselors and therapists, typically, I was like shocked and astounded at how many sex therapists had never seen or said they had seen like much pornography mm -hmm. even. Um, so like being literate in the topics that you you know might come up is incredibly helpful and also doctors like medical doctors or psychiatrists besides therapists how often do they ask their clients like how's your sex life yeah exactly nobody and not very often <laughs> yeah that's right nobody asks the questions and uh, and it's a shame you know because it's a major part of people's lives and when it comes to when it comes to sex workers, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write my book is because even among psychosexual therapists, 
um, they do not talk to sex workers and they, you know, themselves. And so they kind of make assumptions about why people choose this profession. And often it's as assumptions mm-hmm. that are really pathologizing assumptions. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, before I decided to, um, kind of you know, I, I just I just didn't didn't agree with, with with those kind of assumptions in the first place but before I decided to even make my own opinion about it I thought let me talk to sex workers themselves actually right so 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 you get mm-hmm. you know a natural uh, <laughs> lived in experience of what it's like and what I what I heard from multiple sex workers was really vastly different to what some even academics write about. So, you know, and, and then that really uh, made, um, you know, a, a part of some, some chapters in my book. Mm-hmm. And you cite all of your sources and the studies and they are newer studies, which is fantastic. <laughs> None of this crap from like 1980, like the year is 2021, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I noticed, yeah, I noticed some real starkly contrasting things about this book because I'm so used to reading the same old crap where it's like, obviously you're not interacting with the populations and you're looking down on them. Um, (laughs) Yes. Right. So I was going to ask this a little later, but I think it comes up now. So on sexual compulsivity as a term, a lot of people, I've never heard someone say, oh, I'm sexually compulsive. But I've heard someone say, oh, I'm a sex addict, or my husband went to treatment for being a sex addict. Um, Can you tell me why the language matters? Yeah, uh, you're right. This is the popular term that everybody uses, sex addict, not not sexual compulsivity. And that's because that's just the word that people uh, hear about all the time. Anybody, uh, you know, if you Google something like this, that sex addiction is the first thing that comes up. And for the first 10 pages on Google, it will be sex addiction coming up. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's a term that has been invented um, in the uh, early 80s, and it's not been challenged or questioned since. So now it's it's huge. Um, and and it, it, the, the word addiction has even kind of permeated the, the language for lots of anything else. You know, I'm a shop addict, I'm a chocolate addict, I'm a whatever mm-hmm. addict. As soon as Exercise you, addict. Yes, yeah. all of that, you know, which, which all of these are not clinically endorsed either. But mm-hmm. specifically for sexual compulsivity, the language is really important because clinically, the language informs the treatment that we're going to use for our clients. So mm-hmm. if we believe that sex is an addiction, we are more likely to use an addiction treatment. And and it's actually really uh, disturbing to see so many sex addiction textbooks that therapists read where there is so much addictionology in it, but hardly any sexology. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's, that's an issue because the main issue with that, especially with sex addiction, is that it shames people so much. And so, okay, so can we, can you give example on what sexual compulsivity might look like versus what people think sex addiction might be? Yes, of course. So, uh, so in some ways, I don't, I don't blame people for calling themselves sex addicts when they have a sexual compulsivity because it looks and feels really similar. So with sexual compulsivity, people who will be sexual compulsive will be people who will have repetitive sexual behaviors that is unwanted over and over again and 
and that that sexual behavior causes distress in people's lives mm-hmm. and the, when they realize actually i don't want to do this for myself it doesn't feel good for me to do this then they try to stop and then they're unable to stop and so that will be classed as sexual compulsivity and also the the, the sense of distress has to come from primarily and from them feeling distressed about it, not feeling distressed because they think that somebody is not going to like it or because they read a book about it saying, you know, having lots of sex is bad. So it can't be, it can't be an external judgment that provokes the distress. It has to be a distress coming from within, which is a very important component. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really when you look at addiction behaviors, on the surface, it looks pretty similar. Which is why, for you know, in the eighties when there wasn't much sexology around, people tried to um, understand it with what was the closest, which was non-addictions like alcohol and drugs. Yeah, and you explained in the book, and oh, I'm not on that page. I wish I was. I was trying to find it, but you explained the differences how you would diagnose someone with like a substance abuse addiction and then you explain like why sexual compulsivity is not the same right exactly because because your body wants you to have sex because it's healthy for you yes that's right the the main thing is that with what uh, the clinical definition of an addiction is when there is a substance that enters the brain that the brain cannot naturally sustain so that will be substances that the brain cannot naturally uh, form for itself. And that's, mm. you know, so that's obviously this alcohol and that will be the drugs that will hypercharge the brain. And then the brain will start to um, uh, try to adapt itself to, to sustain those kind of chemicals. And in the adaptation of it, then the brain wants more and more and more. And, and so that's what, we, that's what then it creates an escalation. The, the, the brain will need more of these chemicals in order to achieve the same high. And when the drug stops or the alcohol stops, the brain and the entire body goes into a physiological phenomenon that we call withdrawal, which can be very, very uh, absolutely painful, very terrible for people. Mm-hmm. That does not happen with sex. And a lot of people in sex addiction, they say, oh, yes, sex addicts binge on their own brain chemicals. And that is just simply not true. The brain, when we have uh, when we have sex, we have sexual pleasure and we have orgasm. The brain does flood our entire body with with chemicals, but they are feel good chemicals, and most importantly, they are chemicals that the brain produces itself, so the brain naturally can sustain them. Which is why nobody has ever died of an of an overdose of orgasm, and that is why um, when if you do stop having sex, you don't go into withdrawal. So um, I want to give example for why, what comes up, and you might be familiar with this one too, what comes up, why people think it's an addiction is imagine you're the person who you're really stressed out by your kids or your relationship or your job, and you realize that like watching porn and masturbating is a source of comfort and stress relief to you. So what if you just start being that person that you're avoiding the things that are stressful to you and you're spending more and more time masturbating? Maybe this causes relational problems. Your partner is like, why are you avoiding us? Maybe you're not getting your work done, so it's impacting your job. Maybe your genitals are chafed because you're compulsively rubbing them. And so, you know, I think this is why people are like, oh, I'm addicted, I can't control myself. But 
what I've heard is it's not that you're addicted to the thing, but you're using the thing that used to make you feel better to distract from all the other crap that stresses you out. Yes, that's right. But some people, you know, with stressful life, they check out in many other ways. You know, some people uh, go on Instagram. Some people watch Netflix all weekend long. Some people have entire weekends playing golf uh, when they're away from their family. So, uh, but all of those things, uh, I don't hear people, you know, shouting, you're, you're an addict, you know, with all of those things. And, and, and what is the reason? Well, that's because shame, there's a lot of shame with sex and it's so much easier to point the finger at your partner because they decide to check out with a bit of masturbation. But, you know, they don't feel the same if their, their partner were checking out with, you know, playing football for two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, definitely different stigma. Yeah, different stigma, exactly. But mm-hmm. so, the, and another thing um, that is a big myth is people thinking that sex should only be a loving act that is in between two people that love each other in a committed relationship, looking Hetero. into it. Yeah, heterosexual, preferably, definitely, and looking into each other's eyes um, whilst having sex. And that is seen as this is what sex is for. If it's not for reproduction, that it's for that the the kind of like the loving moment between two married heterosexual couple, but mm-hmm. um, but actually having sex and or masturbating and having an orgasm with for for stress relief is a completely functional way to have sex and a completely functional way to regulate emotions. Absolutely. Uh, healthy and functional the only issue as you say is if that's the only way that people have to regulate their emotion then that can become a problem because it means that with what you know if they have five six seven different unpleasant emotions in a day which is quite easy because our lives are quite stressful these days Mm -hmm. if the one go-to is you know watching some porn masturbating orgasming or you know going to you know see some sex workers websites or whatever Mm-hmm. Then of course, then you can feel it can feel compulsive, but it's just mm-hmm. that it's just the, the the one the one the one go to. So what is the treatment? Well, if you were going to have a sex addiction treatment, people will say you must stop this absolutely, and what it will do is harm because you will take away the person's only way to regulate their emotions, and you can make people worse. What you have to do instead is help people create more emotional regulations. Yes. Yeah. So having other tools, you're saying like, what, what's the trigger maybe for you doing the habit, the compulsivity, what's the trigger for it? How do you identify your triggers? How do you have other tools? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, the, the, the triggers are, uh, so again, the, the, the sex addiction people will say triggers will be anything that is of sexual nature and you've got to move away from that and look, look at it. And that really feels like a miserable life given that, you know, there's literally, um, you know, you can literally see people in bikinis on, on adverts everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the uh, the trigger actually for sexual compulsivity is a lot more nuanced and a lot harder to find. And, and even I don't even call them triggers because they're not really triggers; they're more kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. And and those mm-hmm. those experiences could be anything depending on on what the person's content of their mind is. For some people, uh, and and often it is people that. I have a chronic stress because compulsivity is a repetitive, repetitive behavior and it soothes a compulsive stress. If it's only stress once in a while, then you would be using the, the soothing uh, sexual behavior just once in a while. If you use the soothing sexual behavior on a very regular basis, it means that the stress is chronic. 
And that can be just as simple, what I say simple, it's not simple, but just as um, um, obvious as people hating their jobs, for example. Mm-hmm. They hate their job, Monday to Friday, they feel bad about themselves, they feel trapped. Um, and, and so that could be a chronic stress. But for other people, it's the chronic stress is less uh, accessible to their conscious mind because it can be something in the subconscious. And often that's when people struggle with core beliefs about themselves. Things like, I am worthless, I am unlovable, I am um, mm-hmm. all alone in the world. Even if on the surface they're married, they have families, they have friends. If the core belief is I am unlovable, I am all alone in the world, this is what will pull the strings of mm-hmm. behaviors because they will feel still um, in that chronic uh, misery. And, and those, those core beliefs underneath, they are usually created in childhood. So that's when you would be wanting to look back and see how did they how did they learn to feel so bad about themselves? Yeah, what were their caregivers like? Um, yes, I just had a simple screening uh, a couple months ago, and when the provider told me that it, I seemed to uh, have some complex PTSD in the type the style of attachment wounding. <laughs> Does any of that sound familiar to you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so the example she gave, she's like your caregivers, your parents, or whoever, like when you as a child like maybe showed them something and wanted validation or attention did they react consistently you know were they neutral were they enthusiastic and interested or did they yell at you and you have no idea why hmm. so like creating instability and insecurity in your bonding she said that could be she's like does that sound like anything i'm like oh my god i'm thinking about my parents <laughs> So going back to like my, I'm like, why is my codependence or my attaching issues or whatever, like I've done the work and a lot of people just don't have the framing to understand why I think they're so anxious or depressed. Exactly. You're right. You know, a lot of it is um, with our sense, our experience of attachment. And and often people say, um, you know, with the sexual compulsive population, they say, you know, I really don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing because I know that I have a partner or a spouse or whatever, and and they and I know they love me, but I still feel unloved, and so I have to find that love somewhere else. I have to find that sense of I am wanted, I am desired from an, an, another place. And, and often it goes to those places. And you're right, you know, primary caregivers as children, you know, if, if you experience the, the typical thing is experiencing, you know, a cold mother, for example, or a distant father or absent parents or angry parents or witnessing domestic violence and any of those things. Um, sometimes it can be really obvious, you know, if people had really traumatic childhood and they can really identify what went wrong in their childhood. But a lot of people, sometimes they say, my childhood was fine, there was no problem, and because there's not any obvious trauma. But when you actually ask questions and you're curious about what did go on, they often would say something like, yeah, the atmosphere in the household was cold, or it was joyless, or tense. it was tense, mm-hmm. control, controlling, it felt like I couldn't be myself, and all those more kind of nuanced things that you would not typically called trauma. Mm -hmm. So this brings me to, I had never heard of the Coolidge effect. 
this mm-hmm. makes me think of how we relate to monogamy or non-monogamy and people's desires. Um, could you explain what the Coolidge effect is? Yes, it's kind of like from a from a, a, a joke or a story. We never we would never know if it's true or not. But from uh, the U.S. president's Coolidge, and uh, the story is that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Coolidge went to visit a farm, a, a chicken farm, and uh, whilst they went to visit, they were taken to the farm in, in separate occasion. And when the uh, when they went to the farm, there was a rooster that was uh, very sexually active. And Mrs. Coolidge said to the farmer, um, oh, you know, make sure that Mr. Coolidge understands that, you know, the rooster is very sexually active, obviously implying our sex life is dead. Um, And then when Mr. Coolidge went to visit the farm and he saw the same rooster being sexually active and the farmer said, hey, Mrs. Coolidge said, you know, to draw your attention to to the rooster, Mr. Coolidge said, yes, and please tell Mrs. Coolidge that the rooster is sexually active with different hands, <laughs> implying, <laughs> implying you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's kind of, that's formed, formed, that formed the term, the Coolidge effect and what it is really from that joke, uh, you know, then there's been some, some research about it. And what the research shows, which is quite uh, fascinating, actually, is that people um, have a uh, a renewed sexual desire if they observe somebody new who is sexually available, even if their current sexual partner or the one they're committed to is also sexually available. So it's not only for when somebody has issues in their sex life. They, you know, somebody's sex life can be uh, you know, perfectly fine with their regular partner, but if somebody new uh, is around the corner, you know, there's, there's an extra bit of sexual desire. And that's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a biological ph- phenomenon that, that we've seen, which is, uh, which is very interesting. I'm a poly person myself. I know that the more sex I have, even if it's, especially if it's with like a secure, loving partner, the more sex I want to have. So mm. for us, I would sometimes um, flirt with my partner um, and be like, oh, there's a new cute barista, you know, at the coffee shop. Like we would... <laughs> engage with each other about the little perks or thrills or exciting flirtatious interactions we had throughout the day with other people because that also seemed to like renew our excitement in each other i think knowing your partner is desirable so that's like a sex positive way to look at things instead of the classic like are you looking at her don't look at him like don't stand next to that person are you talking to another guy there's just like so much i think shame and jealousy and fear and we weaponize our relationships sometimes anyway, which can lead to people having anxiety and depression, I think, about their relationships. Absolutely. What a fun way to just you know, laugh about flirting. I mean, it's so much, uh, so much more fun and light than feeling like you just can't be looking at anywhere else but your partner's eyes. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're like, I could check out anyone, but I'm checking out you <laughs> right now. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Um, so how, how um, I'm looking at a ton of definitions. You, you have your definitions of sex positivity, and I'm not going to read all 10 of them, but can you name a few that are important to you? Um, yeah. You say the International Society for Sexual Medicine, ISSM, has a description of sex positivity on their website that is 
Having positive attitudes about sex and feeling comfortable with one's own sexual identity and with the sexual behaviors of others. Hmm. So that's fine. That's very general. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great definition, and but it is very general. And so I just really wanted to make a, a bigger definition because I think there's lots of nuance that people would not uh, think about when they read a general two-line definition. And for me, what was important was to uh, to really kind of, although that's what the definition says with the ISSM, what I really wanted to really point out very explicitly is that one person's erotic turn-on can be another person's erotic turn-off. And that's mm-hmm. very, very important because a lot of people would assume um, because of their own erotic and their own turn-on uh, knowledge about themselves, they would assume that it's the same for another person. And, oh, if somebody else has a completely different turn-on, then they they're weird or or i'm weird or yeah. i'm weird exactly if you're the one with the turn on that's not the one the turn on that you know society says is the right one mm-hmm. so yes absolutely and that's really important uh, for me anyway but another thing is um that really goes into sex positivity is embracing all body shapes because we don't often think of body shapes in terms of sex positivity and but i think that's really important because there's a lot of body shaming as well that goes on and and the body shaming goes into places of not being sexually desirable or being sexually desirable just to some to some people or not being allowed to be as uh, sexual uh, than the ones who are uh, you know thinner for example mm-hmm. and, and and although now in the in our society now especially the last couple of years there's more visibility of of p- people that are larger that can be sexy it's still quite a struggle and and i think that's a it's an important bit that we don't often um, uh, understand in terms of sex positivity but of course for me another very important bit is to is to accept that sex is simply not addictive because when you start to think of sex being addictive you start to think of uh, all all of the kind of teachings that we get in the 12-step programs, which uh, which can really pathologize enormous areas of funct- functional and normative uh, sexual behavior. So that's uh, you know, obviously a very important one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to include in sex positivity that we have as a society, as, as therapists, people, and society in general, we have to be a lot more fluent with the gender, sexuality, and relationship diversities that that there are around, including transgender people, asexual people, bisexual people, uh, people mm-hmm. with, with fetishes, polyamorous people, sex workers, mm-hmm. all, all of those people are really important people to include as part of, uh, you know, that, that we are all different, but we are all equal. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a really important part too, I think. Mm-hmm. And sex would be so boring for so many people if we all had it in the classic missionary hetero way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That's not what a lot of us want. That's it. And I think I really wanted to have a bigger definition because one of the things about sex positivity that's really misunderstood is that people think that being sex positive means anything goes. And that's not what we're mm. saying because, you know, we're, you know, sex positivity also comes with clear ideas of consent and boundaries. But sex positivity also includes uh, asexual people. So it means that if people um, don't like sex, don't want sex, well, that, that's part of being sex positivity to, to you know, embrace those people too. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's normal too. 
I've had people say that before. They're like, how do you feel about asexuality? I'm like, oh, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I've, uh, one of my former partners, um, we were in love so intensely for a couple of years. And when we split up, part of the reason, as I communicated to them, was that we were not sexually compatible. So fast forward a decade and a half, and this person tells me, I'm asexual. And I thought, yes, you are. Mm. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of people having as many healthy and diverse relationships throughout their lives. Um, because if I think back to like, can you imagine if you had married the first person you ever had sex with? That's the case for a lot of people. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And some people that works for, but it is no surprise why for a lot of other folks, when we talk about these things, why it does not work. Yeah, exactly. So. And if we go back to um, the kind of like sex addiction thinking, it's really, um, and, and people not really knowing that much about sexuality diversity, um, or even sex therapists who know who don't know that much about sexual sexuality diversity, you might have an asexual person turning up, and 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 the sex therapist will try to get them to be more sexual, because they mm. will think, oh, it's somebody with um, low sexual desire yeah. or inhibited sexual desire disorder, which is you know the the term that <laughs> that is out there, and not really understanding that actually the op- the other option about it is that they can be asexual. And with the sex addiction, a lot of people might be coming and having issues because they don't understand their fetish or their kink or they really um, shame, they feel shame about it. And the sex addiction therapist will say, uh, "Yeah, let's just let's just get you to stop it," you know. And that can actually be quite close to conversion therapy, which is you know mm-hmm. something that is quite unethical and harmful. Mm-hmm. Conversion therapy makes me think of pray the gay away. That's most classically used in the U.S. Right. To like yes. try to, yeah. Convert someone away from their their gayness. Yeah, and and of course, originally conversion therapy, pray the gay away, is is it was a therapy that therapy in kind of a so called therapy. You know, I'd, I'd hate to call it therapy. Um, yeah. But that abuse. It's abuse. <laughs> yeah, it's abuse. Exactly. That um, as you say, attempted to cure homosexuality. But now I think it's still practiced um, by some people under the guise of sex addiction. And it's not just gay people that are victims any longer. It's also heterosexual people who have a fetish, who have a kink, or people that don't conform to the heteronormative uh, society that we have. And and they could be going to a sex addiction therapist with no knowledge of sexology, and they could be harmed by a, a version of conversion therapy. And that is very... Um, very concerning for me because it's not addressed enough at the moment. And it's going on um, a lot of the time, unfortunately. In books, uh, in textbooks, in sex addiction textbooks, even the most recent ones, they talk about the power of prayer to overcome your sex addiction. You know, those books that are supposed to be psychotherapy books are actually... Um, covered in, mm. in religious uh, messages. And, mm. and, and, and that's really quite close to prayer the gay away. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you for explaining all of this. Let's take a quick break. Hey there. Do you want to help people and make money doing it? Becoming a coach might be your ticket. The coaching industry is currently filled with a lot of straight white coaches and working with straight white people who have the privilege to hire them. The Coaching Guild is changing that. The Coaching Guild is looking for diverse people with diverse experiences and backgrounds 
who want to get university-level training to become a coach. This is not a shortcut certification program. This is intense training for the real world. They are looking for the artists, the rebels, and the wild ones. You can change the world one client at a time and make money doing it. Visit www.thecoachingguild.com. Do you have a sensitive vulva or vagina? Me too. People with vaginas will experience at least one yeast infection in their lifetime, and many folks like myself get them every time the seasons change. As someone who relies on their vaginal health for their personal and professional wellness, I use Momotaro Apotheca solutions for preventing bacterial vaginosis or yeast infection. Their products also serve urinary tract infections, postpartum care issues, aftercare, and general irritation from sex, clothing, and exercise. I love these things. I use them to shorten my healing time or prevent irritation. Use Stripper Writer for a discount code and check out their affiliated CBD products at Oshihana.com. That's MomotaroApotheca.com and Oshihana.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. I'm your host, L Stanger. You can find me lstanger.com. Email me, theytalksex at protonmail.com. And rate and review us on your listening app, please, so that more folks can find us. Right now, I have Silva Neves. He is a registered psychotherapist, course director, and clinical sexologist. His new book is called Compulsive Sexual Behaviors, a psychosexual treatment guide for clinicians. You can contact him on Twitter at silvaneves 3 check out sylvaneves.co.uk. So let's do some listener questions. Oh boy. So I sourced my social media audiences, folks from all around the world. Um, these are some, these can be broad questions and there's a lot of unknowns. So we'll try to give the shortest answers that are complete <laughs> without knowing anything about these folks. Okay. So listener question one. When is an appropriate time to reveal my trauma around sex to a new partner? Wow, okay. Uh, that is when you feel the most comfortable to do so, basically. So when you're going to reveal such a story, you have to make sure that you feel completely safe because if you share something like this and um, it's going to be... Um, and, and your partner reacts in a negative way or even not wanting to hear it because for some people they find it very difficult to hear trauma stories so they might just brush it off or they might um, uh, you know decide to change the subject or just say or, or minimize it that's that's not because of you that's because they can't hold it and so make sure first that your partner is able to hold those kind of stories um, before you decide to share yeah, I my first thought was the sooner the better, but that's not correct. Um, the sooner that you feel safer, that's the right. Better. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, so I would say I would say always better to bring it up before you start sexually engaging, um, because if I say to someone like, "Hey, I have huge triggers around like don't spit on me," like if you spit on me, we're done. 
Yeah. So I would, you know, prefer to like give them a little assist, <laughs> both oh, of us. Yeah, if you're if you're going into if you're going into a sexual place, but you're not ready to talk about, you know, your trauma that you had in the past, you definitely have to talk about the boundaries about what can be done and what cannot be done in a sexual encounter. That's for sure. You don't have to explain why at the beginning if you're not ready, but you can definitely say, "Don't touch me there. Don't do that." And that's and for those things to be absolutely crystal clear with your partner. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you do want to share the the trauma story, you can you can have a little test first with your partner just to check if they can handle some kind of those stories. You know, at the moment you can turn on the news and there's always going to be a trauma story in the news. So talk about that first and check if your partner is going to be like, you know, uh, listening and engaging in that conversation. We, we, if, we, if they tend to say, oh, let's talk about something else. Oh, I don't want to talk about this. Oh, it's not that bad, you know, and that will give you a bit of a sense whether your partner is ready to talk about some difficult stuff or not. Mm -hmm. And I like giving personal examples because this really seems to help people. Um, and I'm able to do that. Uh, when I disclosed to a high school boyfriend that his good friend had sexually assaulted me, his response was anger because it was known amongst his friends that his friend had a very large erect penis. And so instead of being concerned for me, my boyfriend partner at the time responded with shaming me, saying that, you know, that like he must have stretched me out. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? I know. Oh, God. Right. Mm. So years, years of therapy. Um, <laughs> I did dump that person by the time uh, shortly after high school ended. So, you know, but can you imagine like opening up to someone in that way and then not only are you not supported, but then you're punished for it. Yeah, that's re-traumatizing. Re-traumatizing, and it can be really tough for some people to get a sense of how their partner will react, because we also don't know all about our partners. We don't know what their traumas or triggers can be. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so tough things to navigate, but do the best you can. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. Uh, I think, I yeah. think the, the, the short answer, you, you got it right. It's, you know, the sooner this, you feel, the safer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think that's, that's I think that's a good one. Yeah, and start with something small. I like that you said you can say, like, definitely name your boundaries or your hard limits and you don't have to explain why. And if your person is not honoring those boundaries and limits, that is a run. sign you do not disclose further because they're already you not don't disclose you. further and you run. Yes, you if go the other way. <laughs> yes, yeah. if your partner can't can't listen and respect some sexual boundaries, you gotta run. Yeah, yeah. It's not like telling the more serious thing will make them take you more seriously. No. Yeah. Uh, so, listener question two: Why do I have so many symptoms of trauma and yet I don't remember anything that happened to me? That's a very question to, uh, that really is very common for many people. And that's because if uh, it's a trauma that's been um, quite overwhelming at the time that it happened, it doesn't matter when it happened, the mind will sometimes protect you to just hide the memory. And that is because your brain knows better. Your brain, you know, one part of your brain is the only purpose of it is to keep you alive and to keep you safe. So your brain knows that if that memory was in your conscious mind, it would stop you from functioning properly. So instead, it just takes it away and put it in a, in a part of the brain that is not accessible to your conscious mind. However, the body 
often remembers the traumas that the brain cannot remember. And you might have some body sensations of post-trauma stress and you don't know where they come from. And that's usually why people often say, I have symptoms of trauma, but I don't remember what it is. It can be very, very distressing to have symptoms and not being able to point it to a particular memory. But what I usually say to um, clients like this, uh, to people like that, is to say, to trust your body. Sometimes you don't have to remember exactly the source of the trauma. Just, just um, trust your body that your body is telling you the truth and the, and the body sensations is a memory in itself. Mm -hmm. So examples again, I love to give these. If I suddenly feel very, very panicky and I'm like, oh my God, I want to drink or I want to smoke weed or I want to punch something, I might go for a jog. Or if I can't go for a jog because of where I live, I might do a bunch of jumping jacks until I'm exhausted and crying. Um, exactly. Great strategies. Thank you. Yeah. Or um, like, oh, God, I feel so lonely. I want to reach out and have someone come over, like even if it's maybe not someone entirely savory. So um, maybe what I should do instead is just bundle myself with a bunch of clothes and blankets and baby myself with some tea and tuck myself in. Like if I need to be comforted, maybe don't seek out an unhealthy person just because I'm lonely, but treat myself like a baby that needs to be swaddled. These are tactics. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, there's a book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Very relevant yeah, to that book. question. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about what it means for your body to remember things, check that book out. Uh, listener question three. I love this. Is it true that porn leads to sexual violence? Why do I keep hearing that? <laughs> yes, you keep hearing that because that's what the porn panic people wants you to believe. <laughs> that's, yes. That's why. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder who the fundamentalists are. Why don't they want me to speak this out? So can, can you dispel some of these myths? Um, porn leads to sexual violence. Porn makes people violent. No, it doesn't. That's the very simple answer. And we know that now because there has been research done and, and you know, several research and they all confirm each other that porn does not cause uh, sexual violence or violence against women or anything like that. But uh, what happens sometimes is that people do have some um, violent views or violent desires towards other people. Typically, it's a man having violent ideas towards women. That predates porn. Let's yeah. also remember that misogyny predates internet porn by decades or even centuries. Thousands so, of years. Yes. So porn um, you know, does not cause it. But if somebody has pre-existing violent ideas about women and then they watch violent porn, it will increase their desire. So porn can increase it, but it doesn't cause it. And that's only if that already exists in that person. So like, exactly. yeah, the examples and the cited uh, studies say that people do not tend to watch something that they find unpleasant. So turning yeah. on porn, if you see something that looks violent to you, you're not going to like it. So you're not going to watch it. But if you realize you like it, well, you already liked it in the first place and you've probably been shitty and a misogynist anyway. <laughs> people that watch um, you know, violent porn is because they like it in the first place. It's not, porn, porn does not create that for you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm looking at the book. It says, uh, data shows that sexual crimes are lower in areas where there is greater access to pornography. This phenomenon is observed widely. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. I think of it as like a pressure valve. Um, when I started stripping a social worker, they're a trans social worker specializing in a substance abuse with their clients. And I remember they looked at me and they were like, God bless you for the work you do because you are a pressure valve. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and so <laughs> later what comes up is a, a friend of mine, she's been stripping 10 years at this point. And we were talking about how our clients had changed over time based on us, like, you know, growing a little older, like an early 20s sex worker might have, have a different appeal than like a mid 30s sex worker. And so she was saying, she said, we were both remarking, but she said when she was younger, um, she had a couple clients who really, really wanted her to look like a teenage schoolgirl, and it creeped her out. But she would sell dances and engage, like with the little schoolgirl skirt and the pigtails, and she could monetize it, and uh, in those containers of the strip club. And so, when I read stuff like that, it makes me think about people who might have a desire for, you know, the teenage cheerleader instead of cruising around a high school trying to sneak a peek, which is a creepy, unhealthy, predatory behavior, you could go to the strip club and pay a grown ass adult to to pretend that's a fantasy. Exactly. And so, right. So I see this stuff play out and I just wish the rest of the world could too. Yeah. <laughs> it's an eye opening. Exactly. And it, it's kind of like common sense, really, if you think about it. You know, if there is such a high pro prohibition and you have no no way to even begin to understand what your sexual arousals are, your sexual fantasies are, then you're just going to demand it and grab it um, without taking care of people's consent or, or people's bodily integrity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so listener question four, how is trauma defined? What is relational trauma? So relational trauma, or trauma in general, and relational trauma can be defined in so many different ways, and many trauma experts have will have their own definition, and so it's not very it's not very clear cut really. But what some people say is that the trauma is basically something that's happened that was an adverse experience for you, and that it was and has a lasting impact, a lasting psychological impact on you. So some people might have a, a car accident, and that could be a trauma. But some people can just resolve it quite quickly, you know, after a few days and then not have a lasting impact on it. Other people might have uh, anything uh, that's happened that's not been um, pleasant, uh, that may, may not be an accident. It could be something, you know, less obvious than that. But it, it has left a mark and not just a scar, but an actual live, uh, a, a live wound that uh, causes problems still now in your in your present life. So that's really how you how you would define a trauma. And relational trauma is um, often the most common traumas actually, but they're also the the ones that are less recognized because they're not usually like a hard hitting accident or anything like this. So they could be something like somebody that you love is rejecting you, or somebody that you love sent something that really hurt you. And it's not necessarily that that other person intended on hurting you, but the impact that they had on you is that at that moment you felt really unloved and really rejected. And that can stay for some people. And so that would be a, a relational trauma in its simplest of forms. But most of the time, uh, relational trauma that are serious are traumas that were happening from people that were supposed to love you. So usually it will be parents, or it would be uh, romantic partners, or it would be friends um, who 
um, hurt hurt you in a way that was intended, and that's really when the relational trauma is at its worst. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you have a partner who um, lies to you, but does it in a way to control an outcome or to you know, get away with doing the things they want to do. And let's say you don't know that. And then let's say you find out and then you talk to the partner and the partner kind of laughs and says like, yeah, I didn't really give a shit about you this whole time. You were just like a, a fuckhole to mm -hmm. me. Like that would be so uh, traumatizing yeah. to a lot of people because your trust is disrupted. Exactly. It's not only that this person was hurting you, but they were doing it behind your back, trying to keep it from you. And then they don't care about your pain. Exactly. Um, that, that's very bad. Right. Yeah. I saw that happen to a friend recently. I actually, uh, I was dating a man once and uh, it turned out he was dating like eight of us and lying to all of us. And as a poly person, again, that wouldn't have mattered, but we weren't using condoms. And so none of us were using condoms. And he looked me in the face when I sat him down and I was like, why? Like, why couldn't you just been honest? You know, I don't care that you want to fuck other people. And he said, I like to manipulate women. I'm good at it. And it's fun for me. Mm -hmm. And my therapist was like, oh, my God, this person is an outlier. If it makes you feel better, most people don't think like this. <laughs> but these people exist and people can do real harm. Yeah, really. Because, you know, the, as you said, the, the issue is not that, you know, he was having sex with other people. The issue is that it was non-consensual. So you could make your own decision about your own sexual health. Mm hmm. So let's do real quick, digisexuality and chemsex were newer terms to me in the book. Um, this is my listener question. Can you briefly explain what those are? Yes. Digisexuality is quite a new term. And it was coined by a fantastic clinician called uh, Mark Twist. Um, and uh, Mark Arthur as well, I think both of them coined the terms. And it's uh, to describe people who uh, prefer to engage in their sex life with the aid of technology. So, and they define two types of digisexuals. There's the first wave digisexuals and the second wave digisexual. The first wave is people that uh, like to interact with other human beings but through the medium of technology. So there will be people who have long-term relationships, for example, and they have most of their relationships with devices like um, video link, iPads, and stuff like that. Or it could be cyber sex, or it could be also those people are um, you know, liking to engage in their sexual behaviors, their solo sexual behavior with porn as well, because it is also a device. Webcam. And webcam mm -hmm. and this type, you know, this type of stuff. So those are, and for these people, it's the, it's the best way to engage in, in sexual activities. So it becomes their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And I have a client, sorry yeah. to interrupt you real quick. I have a client who uh, is, he's really, really kept me going the last year. Um, really like this guy, Pleasant, not huge money, but just like Pleasant and a uh, good client. And he told me, he's like, I've never had a girlfriend. Like, I just prefer to do the sexting and the apps it feels better for me i travel a lot um and i thought that was really cool mm. well these kind of people are definitely uh, most probably uh, on the spectrum of digisexuality and that's actually no 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 issues and no problems mm -hmm. and chemsex and chemsex so i just want to say there's there's a second wave of digisexuals ah, and the okay. second wave of digisexuals are those who like to interact with machines but without another human being on the other side mm 
So, and that is kind of going to be, at the moment, there's not too many of them because to have a, a, a good a good sex life with robots is quite rare at the moment. And especially because mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's would be a very expensive uh, thing to do. But I think, uh, well, it's not I think, the, the, the experts in digisexuality, they, they say that in 10 years from now, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, give, give or take 10 years, there will be such a technology that there will be a lot more second wave digisexuals. So those people that uh, love to engage primarily with machines only. That's fascinating. Like bots. Yeah. I think there's a security in that for people because you could program it so you're not rejected ever. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's it just, again, going goes into the, this fascinating diversity of, of um, human sexuality. And I like that because, and I like the, the way that they have looked into digisexuality because when, before that term was, was coined and before we actually looked into it with proper research, we tended to pathologize the people to say, oh, they have an intimacy disorder or, you know, why can't they just be in the same room with somebody else? And actually now we're looking at, yeah, sure, maybe some people do have, um, you know, an issue with acute anxiety when they're in the same room with other people. Of course, that's that still exists. But actually there's a proportion of people who do not feel distressed um, by... Um, uh, by being in someone with people, they just don't like it as much as they like being with, um, you know, with technologies and with devices. And so then it becomes uh, more of a question of an orientation, like you would think of other other, other sexual orientations. Mm-hmm. So chemsex. Chemsex, chemsex is a, a term that is only used for gay men or men who have sex with men. And that is because um, it's within the backdrop of the um, minority stress that gay men face. And so a lot of gay men, a lot of the gay population will be attracted to the chemsex drugs. And the typical drugs that people take um, are two, two types of drugs, one that increases sexual uh, arousal and one that melts away the shame. And of course, it's prevalent for gay men or, or men who have sex with men because uh, of, again, our society is heteronormative. There is a lot of, a lot of shame about um, same-sex sexual activity. And so a lot of gay men do have a lot of shame about their sexuality and they also uh, feel stigmatized one way or another. So when they take those drugs, they feel super fully connected with, with others. They feel like they don't have to look, have the, to have the perfect body in order to be accepted. They can feel instantly accepted. They can feel an instant sense of connection with their peers. And then they can have sex because of the sexual arousal bit. They can have sex for hours and hours and hours, sometimes the whole weekend. But the problem with that is that those drugs are really, really hard drugs and they um, then create huge uh, problems with, when they're in the calm down and, and quite a lot of issues with, uh, with their sexual health, but also their physical health. Yeah. Um, the first thing that comes to mind with like having sex throughout a weekend is like, oh, my God, the potential for injury, yeah. chafing, friction. Yeah, exactly. You know, That's blood, right. Transmission. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, and gay men report that often when, when they're on the drugs, they would do things that are 
extreme that they would not do sober. For example, they would, uh, you know, because the drugs relaxes the body so much, they can uh, do practices like fisting, fisting for example. And if mm -hmm. it's done, if it's really not done properly, they can uh, they can get really injured. And sometimes they're just doing they're doing it for far too long. The body can't sustain uh, that length of time or that kind of stretch mm -hmm. uh, so quick. Um, mm -hmm. So. Um, so yeah and, and those are those are issues but also in the typically in the chemistry scenes the uh, uh, language of hiv or uh, condoms are not discussed and so the assumption mm -hmm. is that is that you know it's not it's not a, it's not a concern and there is a lot of uh, hiv being uh, contracted during chemsex parties mm -hmm. and just to zoom out too for the general everybody else who's like oh i'm not a gay man who engages this way when you are intoxicated, you're more likely to do risky behaviors yes. and harmful behaviors. So this is the same for everybody. But it is the same for everybody, and and there are some heterosexual people that do take drugs and have you know for, for having uh, sex without shame and having sex for a long period of time or having sex without any anxiety. And so it does happen too in the heterosexual population. And the uh, and the side effect of taking those drugs are the same. You know, people getting to come down and so on. But chemsex has been coined specifically for gay men because the, in, the intensity and the prevalence and the reasons behind the, the attraction is exclusively to that community. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of older men coming into the porn shops and asking to buy video head cleaner, um, the stuff you would sniff mm -hmm. <laughs> or poppers, it's called. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's take another quick break. Ioba Toys is the creator of the super silent sex toys, the Oh My G and the Oh My C. The Oh My G is a G-spot massager with three intensity levels, a massaging pearl, and a unique C-shape made to precisely hit the G-spot. The Oh My C is a clitoral massager with a rotating massaging pearl that mimics a tongue or fingers, also known as oral sex, and it fits in the palm of your hand. Both toys are super silent and come in pink or white. Try code L30 for 30% off on iobatoys.com. Do you have sex questions? Do you want help learning new techniques, communicating with a partner, opening a relationship, or exploring kink? Sex and intimacy coach Stella Harris can help. Book a session now to take your intimate life to the next level. Listeners of this podcast receive 20% off their first session with code TTS. Learn more and schedule at www.stellaharris.net or follow her on Instagram at Stella Harris Erotica. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. Rate or review us on your listening app. Find me, your host, lstanger.com. Find our guest, Silva Neves, at sexpositivityuk.com or silvaneves.co.uk. So this is great. I'm having a great time. I love talking about sex and trauma. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Dark jokes, deep laugh. Um, <laughs> it, it comes up a lot, and I deal with so many people, either if they're coming to me for a consultation, like, as an, a sex educator, or if they're coming to me in the strip club for socialization or touch, but people have so much shame about what is so common. Mm. 
um, desires, needing to feel validated. Um, So let's talk about emotional regulation. There's a phrase you use in the book, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase it, but you said that clients can learn to understand their emotions and to surf them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a good way to explain that. So what would be some examples of like surfing your emotions? It would be to take your emotions lightly and to not overthink them very much. So I'll give you an example. I will give you an example about the sexual context. But if you, for example, just say you're walking down the street and, you know, minding your own business and suddenly you have uh, a craving for chocolate that just pops up, just in the middle of nowhere, you don't know why, you just were thinking about something else and then you have a craving for chocolate. What we tend to do is to think, oh, that's funny, I've got a craving for chocolate. Well, there's no chocolate shop nearby, so I'm just going to carry on my business and I'll just get my chocolate you know, when I can later. And that's it, right? That's how we do it. But with sexual behaviors, if you walk down the street minding your own business and suddenly you have a spontaneous sexual desire or a sexual thought or sexual fantasies that come into your mind, you're more likely to say, oh my gosh, why have I got these thoughts? Where is it coming from? I'm so bad. I shouldn't be having these thoughts. I'm just walking down the street. What happened in my childhood that was so bad that I've got these thoughts walking down the street? And and then Mm -hmm. you just overthink and overthink and overthink and you just make it bigger and bigger and bigger when it just doesn't have to be that big. It's just like your chocolate craving that cops that pops up, comes and goes. So the way that I um, like, like to uh, teach my clients to serve their emotion is just to notice whatever happens for them, the emotions. We have emotions every single moment of our lives. And so it's just to be um, aware of, the, of those emotions and take them lightly. Oh, right now I feel... I feel sad, so let me just breathe into the sadness. And when you breathe into the sadness and you don't have to, you know, uh, have a story about it or or ask where it comes from, it's just calm. Sometimes it just comes because we're human and that's part of human experience. Mm-hmm. And if we just let it come and go and we breathe with it, then it goes pretty soon. And same thing mm-hmm. with any other emotions, same thing with any cravings that we have and same thing with any sexual experiences that we have that might be coming up spontaneously. And people be having some weird ass thoughts. Like it's okay. I, after I had my child, um, I was, I mean, I was a parent for the first time and I remember I was horrified that I had this sudden thought. I had it a couple times. And then when I talked to my therapist, she's like, no, 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 that's normal. So the thought was I was walking down the street, holding my precious child that I had like wanted and tried for. And, uh, and I had this thought, I was like, oh my God, what if I just threw her into the road mm-hmm. and a car ran her over? Like, oh my God. And then I felt sick and I was like, why would I think this? Mm-hmm. And then because it bothered me so much, I had that thought, like, I was like, oh God. So went to the therapist and she said, that's really normal because your brain is suddenly imagining all these possibilities and these fears that you've never had to think about, which is like the life of your kid. Are you going to do that? Of course not. Do people behave in those ways and murder their children? Yeah, they do. So the thought that you had, the passing thought was normal. The fact that it freaked you out and made you feel sick is a really good sign. Now let it go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I did. It just, it just, yeah. uh, as you say, it's, just, it's an anxiety, a fear thought that comes and goes, like so many. Mm-hmm. I, and, and sometimes our fears are really irrational. I mean, we, we, your fear that you're talking about is is some somewhat tangible fear because some people do do that, right? So, mm-hmm. but 
you know, sometimes people have fears that are really irrational, but they're still fears. And why we have irrational fears is because we're human and we're kind of like, you know, weird creatures in that way that we have irrational thoughts. You know, one, one irrational thought I have on a regular basis when I walk down the street is, oh, what if there was a zombie outbreak right now? What would I do? <laughs> okay yeah. that never happened okay it's not based on anything real but i just i just have that thought quite frequently i don't know why it's just it's just there and now i laugh about it mm -hmm. that's so funny <laughs> so let's let's pivot just a little um the book chapter five so the book again compulsive sexual behaviors a psychosexual treatment guide for clinicians chapter five on being ethical first do no harm so I love that you remind clinicians to not confuse your opinions with your personal clinical opinions. So clinical opinions, you say they should be evidence-based, not personal opinions. Um, yeah. So you said morals are an individual's own principles of what is right and wrong. Ethics are rules provided by an external source, such as our professional membership bodies. Um, ethics and morals are often used interchangeably. They have a different meaning. So a therapist may morally disagree with watching porn or visiting sex workers, but ethically they are not to judge the client for these behaviors and they must honor their autonomy. That's right. So you ask, yeah, you ask a few questions here. You said, take a moment to self-reflect. Mm -hmm. And this is for everyone. Uh, what is your personal judgment about going to sex clubs on a weekly basis? What is your personal immediate reaction about barebacking or having sex without barriers, condoms, <clears throat> or dams? What are your personal thoughts and feelings about anonymous sex? What are your personal thoughts and feelings about visiting sex workers? What are your personal thoughts about watching pornography daily? Man, I've done all these things. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, have I visited a sex worker? Um, I've, I've paid my friends. <laughs> Um, okay. So yeah, so stuff like that. So if a client comes in and, and they mention like, let's even say like they mention that they have like a sex club membership. Um, and that might not be a problem for them at all because like, say it's a safer venue and they have safer habits. Um, so there's no issue around it. But if the therapist immediately has an aversion to that, they could very potentially say like, well, you know, like they could look for a problem. Yes, that's right. They look for problems. So because as therapists, we are trained to look for problems, actually, more than we are trained to look for what is functional and what is, what is the pleasure out of it all. So if you combine that with people um, that would self-diagnose with sex addiction, coming to a therapist for help for sex addiction, and the therapist has not a lot of knowledge in sexology and or in contemporary sexology even, and has not very is not very clear about their personal opinions versus their clinical opinion. They could really believe that their personal opinion is their clinical opinion, and that is very easily done because if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, a lot of therapists are not trained in human sexology. So people finish their training thinking that whatever they believe or feel about sex or some sexual activities are, um, you know, what everybody else should believe. So, um, and, and, you know, if you think about it, how quick, you know, the, the, the topic on sex and relationship is so emotive. Just notice how quick you make a judgment if your friend comes to you and say, my partner cheated on me. You make an almost an in instant judgment on that, on that person. 
or an or, or, or instant judgment on the on the cheating behavior you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that comes so quick and so then if you if you definitely have some very uh, strong opinions about some some sexual activities yeah that will easily seep into the the consulting room and shame your clients for things that um, they shouldn't be shamed about um you know so, one 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 big one is you know like uh, i mean the the ones i've put in the book are kind of like the all the big ones that typically uh, therapists make, make mistake with um but some are thinking for example visiting sex workers that's a very big one some therapists believe that visiting sex workers is a blanket dysfunction Mm -hmm. If you do it, there must be something wrong with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas a lot of clients, it's another way to spice up and diversify their already healthy sex lives. If Absolutely. If they're coming solo or with a partner or a date. Yes. Or just, um, or just enjoy having an, an experience of having some control over their sex life and having a, uh, a sexual activity that is free of anxiety because they know that what's going to happen is something that they've asked for. Mm-hmm. So we talked about this a lot, but I just really want to drive it home because this is so impactful for so many people. So sexual shame increases the likelihood that people will identify as being addicted to sex. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So in religion, we see this play out a lot where, you know, right around puberty age, if or before, if your church or your faith group starts showing you videos or teaching you things that having desire or arousal is bad and unhealthy, well, check it out. That's what our bodies are supposed to do at that age. So you're going to have a whole swath of youth that think that they need to suppress their desires. So you have stuff like my friend in high school who wore two or three pairs of underwear so that they would be less sensitive. Mm -hmm. Instead of moving through their day, they're hyper fixated on can my crotch feel anything? Oh my God, am I going to become aroused? Yeah. That's a tough way to live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So if you have shame or confusion about sex, you are more likely to think that what you're doing is unhealthy or wrong. Mm. Yeah, so that's right. That's why we need. And, and because of so much judgment and, um, you know, you mentioned religion, of course, that's a, that's a biggie because in any religion that you can think of, there is, there is some sexual prohibition and some judgment about some um, sexual activity. And, and usually the, the requirement within the religion of, of good sex is really, really, really strict. And most people actually fall out of the box. And then when, when they fall out of the box, they feel a lot of shame about themselves. But also mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realize, you know, some people will say, well, I, I did not grow up in a religious household. You know, my parents were liberal and I still have this shame. And the thing mm -hmm. is that a lot of people don't realize that even when they grow up in a liberal household, some sex message come from religion. It's not just, they just don't learn it in a church, but, you know, monogamy, for example, mono, the concept of monogamy has its root in early Christianity. So, you know, and then we see, and just thinking about that, that, go, that monogamy is the gold standard in our society, even if it comes from liberal parents, it's still a religious message somewhere. Because, mm -hmm. because the religious teaching on sex and relationship has permeated our, our society and, and, and it, it's, it's here and it's here to stay. And sometimes we have to really uh, pay more attention to, to those things. Everybody, anybody, even in, in liberal, uh, liberal uh, families, they will become teenagers and adults with some sex and relationship scripts that are not always the truth. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff even in leftist circles, at least over here in the US, I'm constantly reminding my fellow leftists, um, some of which are like, they they say, yeah, I'm, I'm a feminist or, you know, whatever. I'll be like, hey, can you stop making like small dick jokes? <laughs> right. It's actually really harmful. You know, like that's a narrative we grew up with is like a big hard penis is a valuable penis, you mm -hmm. know? Um, or like an orgasm for women like has to happen or else there's something like wrong and mismatched. Whereas some people just don't have orgasms that often or putting the pressure on, you know, like you demand an orgasm that that gives no tools on how to seek pleasure, but puts a lot of demand on people. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. So those are, are those are the, the so, so common things. Yeah. So. Thank you so much for coming on. I like to ask all of our guests before we go, do you have any sex tips for our audience? Well, I have, um, I think the main one is um, to really be aware of your pleasure because pleasure is something that somehow, weirdly, we forget to talk about and we forget to focus on. When people go into sex or think about sex, they focus on how the body looks and the genitals and performance, mm -hmm. you know, performance, 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 goal. Lingerie, toys. Yeah, all of that. And I say, you know, my sex tip is relax. Just enjoy the pleasure, even if it's just touching touching each other no penetration no erection no orgasm no nothing just enjoy that touch enjoy that moment that's what sex is sex mm -hmm. is two bodies or three or four it depends getting together mm -hmm. and just enjoying that moment and that's what it is really so let's mm -hmm. take the pressure of that sex performance thing mm -hmm. i love it thank you so much sylva neves Everybody, please check him out. Silva Neves 3 on Twitter, Instagram, Silva Neves Psychotherapy. Um, buy his book, even if you're not a clinician. That's allowed, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, it's it's really, really easy to read. It's about 180 pages. Um, Compulsive Sexual Behaviors, a Psychosexual Treatment Guide for Clinicians. And find me on lstanger.com. Email me, theytalksex at protonmail.com. And until next time. <laughs>